Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Hello and welcome back to The Last Word. I'm Cam, uh, one of the Crosstalk interns, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts this morning. We've got Johnny. Hello there. Yes, my co-intern. Hello there. Hello back. And then we've got JD. So good to be here this morning. It is great to be here this morning. Beautiful morning, huh? Mm-hmm. So pretty. Yeah. I sat outside for a little bit this morning. It was just really nice. Yeah. I loved it. I already missed the heat. <laughs> you miss it? Yeah. You're like, war- you're like cold-blooded, though. You need the heat <laughs> and the sun and Johnny, just like sit there and bake to get going. Johnny's yeah. like made for the sun and for the heat, so it makes sense. Um, so we just kind of concluded talking about the Genesis story at Crosstalk, and we started off talking about how creation is good and how human beings, we were created good. But then last week, we kind of closed it out by talking about our brokenness. And so, J.D., why do you think it's so important to not just leave it at the good and we were just created good? Why do you think it's so important to emphasize that we're broken with that as well? Because it places us in a deep and dire need for a Savior. Mm -hmm. I think that it's not hard to look around the world around us and see that there's something wrong with all of the brokenness, with all of the evil, with all of um, these really difficult ways that we treat one another and treat our world. It, it's really easy to see that this is there's something wrong, that there is something broken. And when we come to terms with that brokenness, it places us in a position of really seeing the beauty of the gospel message, which is that in the midst of our brokenness, which we could never fix for ourselves, God broke into time and space and made a way for us to be back into right relationship with him. And that is just the most beautiful story that's ever mm-hmm. been told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, I mean, yeah, we were created good and it was like a nice message, but then if we were to just leave it at that, then it'd be like, well, I'm struggling. Like, why do I not feel like I'm good? Um, like that would be me if it just like ended right there. And so I think it really plays into like, hey, like John 16, 33 tells us like there are trials in this world you will face. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that it plays into like, hey, we are all struggling though. So let's talk about that and how that played in or played out in the Genesis narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very true. Very good. On the opposite side of that, I, I was just kind of wondering and like, I wanted to see if you could elaborate on this. Why on the other side of the coin is it important to talk about us being good, like from the start? And like, how does that play into how we see each other now? Even though we're broken, but we're still created in the image of God. Like how do those kind of like go hand in hand? Oh, absolutely. That That is a really, really good point. I think that uh, what we see is like, yeah, this is good. And God created it good because he is good. So there is like a piece of this that is very logical where if God is good, then he is not going to create something that is not good. It's against his nature. It's out of character mm-hmm. with God. And so if God is good, then he must create good things because that is what is in his character. So that's a very important piece of this is that we're upholding God's goodness by affirming God's good creation. But the second piece of this is it just stands against this idea or this conception that uh, like this very pessimistic worldview that humans are what is wrong with the world. Mm -hmm. And that's not the reality. God created humans good so that we might exercise dominion over his creation to bring about human flourishing. And so when we recognize the goodness and then we see the brokenness, we see the beauty of what what happens in the biblical narrative as we move towards the new creation, that as we enter, as God brings about his kingdom here on earth, we see the redemption of that good creation, that we see his glory made manifest in the goodness of creation as Mm -hmm. he intends it to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That does. Yeah, I'd agree with that, that it leads to that negative viewpoint of not only humans, but of God. If we Mm -hmm. don't talk about that, like, Mm -hmm. hey, no, like whenever we look at, you know, hurricanes and just bad things happening in our lives and other people's lives and just random things that are bad happening throughout the world, we, I often see everyone just point the finger at God saying that either like, like, oh, he allowed it. So it's his fault and it's everything about him or like he did this to us. But in reality, no, like God's intentions were so good that he made us good and everything was great. The garden was amazing, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then there's brokenness in this world. Like that's just the truth. And that's the cost of <laughs> God loving us so much to give us free will. Yeah. Um, and so I definitely think it like brings us back to realizing that like, no, we have a really, really perfect father. Mm. And that's what I think. Yeah, yeah. That actually ties really well into what I was wanting to ask you guys next. And that's like this concept of sin and like why we have sin. And so Mm -hmm. JD, at Crosstalk on Thursday, you define sin as a mistrust of God and of his word that manifests itself in disobedience. And so can you kind of elaborate on why the mistrust of God was such a big deal in the garden and how it's still such a big deal today and why it matters? Totally. There is this idea that kind of sits behind that statement that God was holding out on human beings, Mm -hmm. that he was withholding something that was good. Mm -hmm. And so human beings distrust in God. It's a mistrust in God and the word of God that he is not holding out on us. And so when we take that control away from God and we take it into our own hands, what we're doing is saying that we want to be like God. God. That's what the serpent says, that if you eat of the tree, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. And that's to place ourselves at the very center of the universe, that everything now revolves around us, that people should uh, get out of my way when I'm driving, and that I should always, like, you are an inconvenience in my space, and all of these other ideas. And so the real issue with sin is that we place ourselves there at like the center of the universe. When we then trust God and his word, we place him at the center of the universe, understanding that we are one of his creatures and we are not the creator. And I think that that's a really big distinction when we think about sin is understanding that he is the creator and we are the creature. And it's when we get that backwards that we really get into issues in our life. Yeah, I think it plays into a lot of, how we think God is holding out on us mm-hmm. and that we think we deserve more. Mm-hmm. And I can root like most sin I can think of back to thinking like, okay, I believed that God was holding out on something specific from me, mm-hmm. whether that was treasures, satisfaction, status, uh, like an easy life. Um, and so I think that that's what most of us go through is that we're thinking God isn't giving us what we want and so therefore I'm going to act out against that because I felt like I deserved, you know, yeah. something better right. in life. Yeah. Um, but it goes back to that John 16, <laughs> Yeah. I think it can also go back to like how we just talked about in the last question with God can't create anything but good things. Mm-hmm. And so if we don't understand that God only creates good things and if we don't understand his character in that way, and if we're not spending time with him, then mm-hmm. and if yeah. we're not asking him, then why would we like believe that he is gonna be good and like create that, um, creates only good things. And so that's why I think it's also so important to like get to know him and place your trust in him and not into things of this world. So um, really awesome talks this morning, guys, but I kind of want to hand it over to JD. We're handing over, we're going into a new series starting this week. So you wanna kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So far this semester, we've been in a series where we have been looking at these first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And these three chapters really tell us a story about the creator God who brings into existence a good creation over which he appoints male and female to be his image bearers and his divine representatives in creation. The problem is that human beings, as we just talked about, disobey God. And sin enters the world and this perfect fellowship between God and humans is ruptured. And when we think about this story, the first thing we need to recognize is that God is the principal protagonist in the Christian story. He is the main character. The Bible is a story about God, which then leads us to the question, well, if the Bible is a story about God, then what is God like? And that's the question that we're going to seek to answer for the rest of the semester. And we're going to do that by looking at his character as it is revealed in the Bible. And we find this description of God's character in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And this is the first description of God's character by God himself. And so what we're going to do is we're going to examine who does God say God is? And how does that impact the way in which we understand him and his work in the world? And so I'm really excited to continue with that and hope to see you guys there on Thursday night. We'll see you next week. Maybe it's your first time or first time in a long time. I am excited that you guys are here. It's, it's my privilege, really, to serve as the pastor of this community that we call 
crosstalk. Last Saturday, we uh, hung out as, as a community for Fall Getaway. It was an awesome time if you guys weren't there. I am sad that you guys missed it. It was a great time of fellowship, of getting together, playing games, hanging out in the river, watching, unfortunately, Texas State lose another football game. But that's like almost par for the course at this point. But that's what it's all about. Life happening in community with one another. Relationships with one another. And that's why I am so excited about what I believe God is doing here in the community of Crosstalk is that he is drawing us together as a community. He's drawing us into deeper relationship with God and also with each other. Now, We've been in a series so far this semester where we've been digging into the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And we've been pulling out these key theological ideas that begin to form a biblical worldview. They begin to form a biblical worldview. And they're keen, I like to think of them like tools in a tool belt. We gather tools. For some people, we buy way more tools than we ever will need or use. But you can think of this small instance where you might need something. And so you go and you buy a tool, and that's what we do when we accumulate and we we go deeper into understanding what are the foundations of what we believe. We put these tools in our tool belts, so when we're challenged with our friends, when we're challenged with our classes, when we're challenged by all of these different things, maybe it's in your workplace, we have this foundational understanding of what a biblical worldview looks like, when all of these things come against that, when they challenge it. Now, so far we've been in this for four weeks. I think it's four weeks so far. And we've talked about some really cool key theological ideas. The first of which, starting right at the beginning, is that God created. God is the creator. The first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The first sentence of the Bible declares that God created and ordered the world, that he is ultimately the one who sustains it. The world is not some grand cosmic accident, but creation was intentional. It was careful. It was lovingly done by God. We explored the idea that God created ex nihilo. This is an old Latin word that means out of nothing. This is what distinguishes us as creatures from God. We as created beings have the ability to create something out of something, right? So when we go and we, we do art, any sort of creative expression of that nature, we're creating something out of a medium that already exists. What makes the distinction between us and God is that he is able to bring something out of nothing. Namely, that there was no pre-existent matter, that at the beginning of the universe, he created and spoke into being the world as we know it. We then explored that God created it good. The creation is ultimately good. God is good, and the creation that he brings into existence reflects his goodness. Six times in Genesis 1, God looks upon what he has made, and he declares it good. Then God creates human beings, and right there at the end of Genesis chapter 1, he calls it very good. He calls it very good. And when God created human beings, he, gives, he gave us this unique task to be his representative here on earth. He gives human beings dominion over all of creation. To say it in another way, in Genesis chapter 2, he places them in a garden in Eden to work it and to keep it. That our God-given responsibility is to work and to keep creation in a responsible way. The implication is that we are responsible personally, individually, for how we care for God's good creation. Now, according to Genesis, humanity's inability to fulfill this God-given responsibility to exercise dominion over creation has some pretty serious consequences. We don't have to look really anywhere but what's right around us to see this. We see the effects of sin and evil play out in our relationships and care for creation, but also for other human beings, which are part of God's creation. Human beings have perpetuated harm and violence against God's good creation. We've destroyed creation through our exploitation 
of it. But we've not only destroyed creation in that way, but we've perpetuated violence and evil against other human beings since Cain kills Abel in Genesis chapter 4. So the following week, last week, we talked about how human beings are made in the image of God. Human beings are made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 27. There's this beautiful poem. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him. This is what is called the Imago Dei. Now, this is just another Latin phrase, meaning the image of God. At the beginning of the world, here in Genesis chapter 1, God defined our worth so that sinful human beings were not responsible for determining the value of a human life. We don't get to ascribe value to human life. And we saw how this affects the way that we think about a variety of issues and participate in the treatment of other human beings. When we look at others as being created in the image of God, that changes the way that we understand the value of their life. Let me put it this way. From conception to death, human beings have dignity and eminence and significance because we are made in God's image. Now, I do want to take a second and acknowledge that last week, I maybe got a little bit passionate when I was talking about this. Maybe got a little bit passionate when I was talking about this, and I apologize if that passion came across as like anger or frustration towards Christians or the church. That's exactly the opposite of what I intended to come across. The reason I get passionate when talking about this is because of my deep love for the church, my deep belief in the church. It's a deep conviction that God is using the church as his chosen institution to bring about his kingdom here on earth. And that's something that I get excited about. That's something that really stirs something deep within me. And the amazing part about that is that God uses us as broken and sinful people to be a part of that work, of bringing justice and mercy to all people here on the earth. And so I wanted to show you guys just a slide here of some ways that you guys can get involved if you guys are passionate about any of these things. To be a part of caring for the people of God. Now, Cypress Creek Cares is the local missions arm of Cypress Creek Church. And we care for our community in all of these different ways. We're involved with all of these organizations doing work with vulnerable populations here in our community in Hayes County. And so I want to point out here that we're involved in caring for the orphan with our involvement with Foster Village, with Arms of Hope. We care for the widow through Touchstone. We care for the family through the Timothy Center and the Center for Relational Care, which are both counseling centers for our families. We care for the unborn through Heart of Texas and True Choice, which are pregnancy resource centers in San Marcos and in Dripping Springs. We care for the poor and the sojourner through Barnabas Connection and Crisis Breadbasket and Feeding Wimberley, and we care for the incarcerated through bridges to life. Cypress Creek Church is a church that cares for our community and is involved in the work of caring for the vulnerable populations right here in the cities that we live in. And so if you guys want to get involved in any of these things, if there's a passion for any of these things that stirs in your heart and you feel a deep conviction to get involved, please come talk to me. I would love to get you guys hooked up with one of these organizations and put you guys in a place where you can begin to serve and further their work here in our communities. Because I do believe so deeply that the church is God's chosen institution to bring about his kingdom here on earth, which involves care for our most vulnerable populations. And I believe that Crosstalk, I believe that Cypress Creek Church is up to that task for caring for our community, for loving the people in our community because we recognize that they are made in the image of God. That is why I can get passionate. That's why I can be imploring because it's out of this deep sense of care. 
And it's my honor, really, to serve in a church that cares in these ways, that shows up in the face of real need and demonstrates great love to our most vulnerable populations. Now, there's something that's attached, really, to this image of God. You can't have one without the other, and that's that male and female, God created them. This is something that's directly related to the image of God. We see in that same Genesis 127 passage something else that's important for us to understand. It's found at the back end of that verse. It says, male and female, he created them. And this demonstrates for us that gender was a part of God's ordering of the world, that we live in a gendered reality. Biological sex in every individual is one aspect of God's design that proclaims his creativity and gives us a clearer picture of his divine image that is within each and every one of us. Now, this distinct feature of every human individual reminds us that no life is ever interchangeable, replaceable, or worthless. And so we come to this point now where we address the last of these topics, and that's the topic of brokenness. It's the topic of brokenness. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of uh, when I was a fourth grader, which we're going way, way back. When I was a kid in school, Similar to probably a lot of you guys, the best thing about school was not actually learning anything. I like to go outside, I like to run around, I like to play, all of those sorts of things. So whether it was football, whether it was kickball, whether it was soccer, any of the basketball, that's what I wanted, that's what I went to school for, was the fact that I got to hang out and play those things with my friends for about a half hour a day. Now, when I was in fourth grade, Foursquare became like the in thing. I don't know if, that ever, if you guys ever went through that phase when you guys were in elementary school, but Foursquare became the in thing, which meant that I had to get good at playing Foursquare. And we played with all of those like add-on rules that if you were in the first square, you got to call like what the rules were until you got out. So it was like cherry bombs and snake eyes and like double taps and all, all of those sorts of things. And so one day, I'm running to go get a ball, and they, they had two four-square kind of like, I, are they a court? Like, I don't even know how to reference like a four-square. Like, yeah, there's just, like two games going on. I take off after a ball, and what I didn't know is that there was another ball coming from the other game that got right under my feet. And so I stepped on the ball and wasn't paying any attention and just like couldn't even get my hands out in time and just smashed my face on the ground. Like, it could have been on, is it Ridiculousness? That was the show when I was in high school. Is that show even still around? I don't know if there's a new one at this point. I could have been made fun of by Rob Deerdeck for sure, for a good while. But I just smashed my face on the ground, and I ended up with a black eye that was so bad that my eye was totally and completely swollen shut. Like, I couldn't see out of it. It was just closed. And I remember that night, I was like, I am not going to school. Like, forever, how long I have this, I'm not going back. Like, I just look like a Frankenstein monster at this point. I don't want anybody to see me. My mom makes me go to school the next day, so my solution was to find the biggest pair of sunglasses I could possibly find and just wear those suckers around and pretend like nothing was wrong. Like, no peripheral vision on the left side of my face, but it was like, nobody can tell that I have this humongous black eye. I just wanted to prevent anyone else from seeing my brokenness. I wanted everyone else to, to not be able to see my perceived weakness or my imperfections. I didn't want people to see my own, what I perceived to be as ugliness. And so I just tried to find ways to cover it up. Now, this is a really elementary example, but this story from my childhood represents a very early manifestation of what happens throughout our lives our desire to try to hide our brokenness, to cover it up with all sorts of things. As we get older, we just get better and more sophisticated at covering our brokenness up. Where we get to the point where we don't think that anybody else can see it. Now, for a long time, I looked to achievements. I looked to attention from others. I looked to affirmation from others. I looked to relationships. I looked to pornography and alcohol and tobacco. All of these other things 
because I thought that they would fix the brokenness or that they would cover up the brokenness that I was experiencing in my own life. But the reality was that it never worked. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we can all say the same thing. When we turn to all of these other things in the world to try to find a way to cover up our brokenness or we believe that it's going to fix our brokenness, we always end up more empty and more broken than when we started. Because we turn to things that aren't God to fulfill a need that only God can fulfill in our life. And so the question becomes, where does this brokenness come from? If you guys just want to like flip to the second page of your Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 today. We're going to start in verse 5. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, and then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, I'm a nerd, and so I have to point this stuff out because there's some really cool stuff happening, specifically here in verse 7. The word man is the one that I want to zoom in on. This is uh, an example of what in Hebrew is an idiom. Like, it's a Hebrew idiom, which means that it has multiple meanings. The first person, the first man that was created, we call Adam. We call Adam, but that word, the, the word for man in Hebrew is literally Adam, okay? So it's like kind of a, it throws you for a loop here for a second because it just says the man, but it says Adam. Now, Adam means both a specific man, the first man, but it also means humankind, so it has these multiple layers of meaning here in the same word. So really, it's a play on words. We're supposed to understand this specific man to be Adam, but we're also supposed to understand that that word connotes all of humankind. Are you guys following me? Yeah, it's kind of layers of meaning inside this single word. But this isn't the end of this like creative use of language in Genesis 2. The word for ground or for dirt is Adamah. Adamah. And so, God made the Adam out of the Adamah. It's just an extra letter here. And so there's this weird continued wordplay that's going on where he creates the Adam out of the Adamah. And so we see that really it gets at this idea that human beings are these creatures made out of the dirt that God has breathed his creative and sustaining breath of life into. That's why it says there at the end of verse 7, and the man became a living creature. He created us out of the dust of the dirt, and he breathed his life into us. This is an example of how literary design can really be used by an author to communicate these vast and deep ideas as we continue to study the scriptures, as we continue to meditate on these things, there are layers of meaning. This is why the biblical text is meant to be read circular. It's read circular, which means that it's read over and over and over again throughout a lifetime because God takes us to new levels of understanding and meaning every time we open his text. So verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we need to notice here, there are two trees. Oftentimes we like to focus on one tree. But there are two trees. You have the tree of life and you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it goes on to say that there was a river that flows out of Eden that, that branches into four rivers. It's the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Then in verse 15, it says that the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. We talked about this several weeks ago. This is our divine assignment, our God-given responsibility as human beings to work and to care for creation. 
Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden. You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but... Sorry, lost my place. (laughs) Shall eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, fairly simple. There's one rule, right? Eat of all of it, except for the one tree. One tree is off limits. If you eat of it, you will not die. You're going to surely die. In Hebrew, this is another weird thing. It's just a sidebar. When they want to emphasize a word, they say it twice. So if you look at this in the original language, it says, you will die, die. (laughs) If you eat of the tree, you're not going to die. You're going to die, die. You're going to surely die. That's, the, that's what God tells Adam here in the garden. All of this is in bounds. This one thing is out of bounds. And you get this weird sense of foreshadowing that happens at this point in the story. At least I do. You're like, okay, so far so good. But it seems like with one rule, we're not very good about rules. <laughs> like, we're going to see what happens. So, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper found fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to him. Then the man said, this is a beautiful poem. This at last is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So all is well and good in the world at this point. You have Adam and Eve. They're living happily in a garden. They're told that they can do whatever they want. They just can't eat of this one specific tree. We're told at this point, actually, that they are naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. They're living the dream. And then we turn the page again. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So obviously at some point, this divine command that was given from God to the man has now been given, he communicated it to his wife. We see that Adam obviously had to have told her that we're not allowed to eat of that tree. Otherwise, she would have said, I'm allowed to do whatever I want. So we see here that she knows, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now I want to point out something here in Genesis 3, 6. And this is a key phrase for us to see and to understand. The phrase is present here in the ESV, which we are reading. But sometimes it's not present in other English translations, which really just is a mistranslation. It's something that has to be in the text. It's the phrase who was with her? Who was with her? Right there at the end of verse 6. Now, this is a very simple prepositional phrase. Originally, it just says, with her, but that doesn't flow well in English. So, who was with her? 
But this really affects how we interpret this verse. What does it mean? Well, the implications of it seem to mean that Adam was with Eve at the moment that she is deceived, that she takes of the fruit, and that she eats. Right? So if we read this back here, we're going to start in the verse. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So Adam is there with Eve at the moment that sin enters the world. So we need to recognize at the moment when sin enters the world that both Adam and Eve, male and female, are responsible for it. Meaning that this is not a gender thing in any way, shape, or form. The point of the story is that sin enters the world because human beings exercise their free will and choose to disobey God. That's the moral of the story. They want to be like God as the snake says, knowing good and evil. Now, this is the general tendency for us as human beings to take God out of his place as the center of the universe and to place ourselves there, that everything in the universe revolves around me. I want to be the lowercase g God of my own world. It's power and control. It's this temptation for power and control in our lives and to not trust God in what he has said. Now, Adam and Eve hear Yahweh, God, walking in the garden. They become afraid and they hide themselves, we're told. So God is actually walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. They've eaten of the fruit and they're afraid, so they hide themselves. So God asks, where are you? Adam answers, we're afraid, so we hid ourselves. Then verse 11, he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. What follows at this point is a litany of consequences after this. For the snake, for the man, for the woman, God curses the ground which have some real significance. But the thing that we need to see when we look at this passage is that sin enters the world and the perfect fellowship that existed between God and human beings is broken. That there is a rift that is created between God and us as a result of sin entering the world. The story tells us that Adam and Eve are then exiled out of the garden to work the ground that they're tossed out of this perfect Eden, and now they're cursed to go work the ground. Now, in the Christian tradition, this story in Genesis 3 is generally called the fall. You guys might have heard that if you were around church at all growing up. We refer to this as the fall, and it's the moment at which we see what is called original sin. Original sin. Now, original sin being the moment at which sin entered the world and that perfect fellowship between God and humans is broken. Well, what is sin? That's kind of the question that we have to ask ourselves if we point to this and say that this is the fall and that the point at which original sin enters. Well, what is sin? Now, the word sin or other words like it are really curiously not present in this chapter. They're not. In no, nowhere in Genesis chapter 3 is the word sin or anything like it present. So what are we supposed to make of that? Well, the first thing we have to realize is that stories are similar to games and that certain things don't have to be named. This is the art of great storytelling, to be able to say something without saying it, right? So we as the reader are supposed to, this co- are supposed to come to this understanding of sin through our reading of the story. Nonetheless, this makes it very difficult to pinpoint and define sin. Looking at the story, sin may be best defined as a mistrust of God and the word of God. A mistrust of God and the word of God, which then manifests itself in disobedience. Does that make sense? 
And these become recurring themes that if you guys read the Old Testament, you'll see over and over and over again where separation from God causes this disobedience which ultimately leads to displacement for the people of God. In these ways, the Genesis 3 story is not written only as a, to reflect like a story of the past, but also to claim that in fundamental ways it represents the character of human life even to this day, which is fraught with brokenness at every Level. We as human beings deal with these same issues. We probably don't talk about it in those terms anymore, but these are the same things that we deal with today. And here's where we come to this idea of brokenness. Because of sin, we all have brokenness in our life. It's just a reality. Because of sin, we all have brokenness in our lives. And perhaps we're, we've been grieved from a broken heart from complicated situations. Maybe you guys have lost loved ones. Maybe you have broken relationships that have happened in your life. Whether it's from choices that we've made or circumstances out of our control, sometimes we find our spot where we are so profoundly broken that we don't think that it can ever be restored again. We try everything to make it right by being good people, by changing our lifestyle, by seeking wise counsel from the people around us. Yet nothing that we do sticks. Nothing that we do works. Everything is damaged beyond our ability to repair it. Now, this is one of the things that I love about the biblical narrative because it doesn't stop here with this very sobering reality and view of life. But if we keep reading, When we get to the gospel accounts, we see something that's incredibly profound. In the gospels, we see that God loved us so much that he couldn't just let the pieces lie where they fell. He refused to give up on his creation despite their evil, despite their sin, despite their disobedience and mistrust. So God breaks into time and space and sending his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life and to die on a cross for your sake and for mine in our place so that we could see how serious God is about restoring us to right relationship with him, about making a way for us to come into right relationship with the creator of the universe that he sacrifices his own son. You see, sin broke things so severely that it created a massive rift between us and God. And the cracks are too deep for us to be able to traverse on our own. But when Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, he filled in those cracks and he made it possible for each of us to have a personal relationship with the creator God who knows you and loves you, who made you in his image. In thinking about brokenness, I've been profoundly impacted by an artist named Makoto Fujimura. He's an artist who is a follower of Jesus, and he's written and talked a lot about, uh, it's called the art of kintsuki. Now, kintsuki is the art of repairing Japanese pottery. You have these teapots and these bowls that are passed down through the generations in families in Japan. And they become these really significant, important, priceless things that hold immense value to families. But what happens when one gets dropped and broken? What happens in Japan when they have an earthquake and something breaks? What happens during wartime when somebody comes in and they break these things. This art form was actually something that an artist 700 years ago developed to be an act of peacemaking during times of war. I think it's really remarkable that he viewed this art form as a way for peacemaking during intense times of conflict. So Kintsuki is the art of repairing something that is broken with gold, with the understanding that the object is more beautiful because it has been broken. 
The object is more beautiful because it has been broken. Now, Mako believes that the gospel message is hidden inside of this pottery. That when we look at this pottery, we see the great love and grace of God made manifest in the person of Jesus. When thinking about this, I think about my own tendency that when something breaks in my home, I just toss it out. It's time to go get a new one. I'm not going to keep something broken around my home. And what we see and what God has done is the exact opposite. He's taken something that is profoundly broken with no hope of repairing itself, and he has repaired it. He has made it whole. He has redeemed it in a way that we never could. The idea is that by embracing the flaws and the imperfections, you can create something even stronger and more beautiful. That every break is unique, and instead of repairing an item like new, of using glue that looks exactly the same color as the pottery, the use of the gold actually highlights the scars and the breaks that happen in the pottery. And it draws our eyes to those imperfections and breaks. It calls us to behold them, to pay attention to them, to see every curve and fracture, every spot where it couldn't be perfectly mended, and behold it as this beautiful work of art. In the same way that Jesus, when he's in his resurrected body, still bears the nail marks from when he was on the cross. He still bears the nail marks, and he invites Thomas to touch them, to behold them, to to see that these are real. Now, Mako uses this as a metaphor for the healing work that God does in our life when we come into relationship with him. The fractures in the pot, the nail marks in Jesus' resurrected body are carried into the new creation, and they're made New. This is why the scriptures say, through his wounds, we are healed. Through his wounds, we are healed. Now, Mako says that Kintsuki teaches us an important lesson. In the process of repairing things that have been broken, we actually create something that is more, more unique, more beautiful, and more valuable and resilient in the process. Like the art of Kintsuki, God repairs the brokenness in our life and he makes us beautiful through the process. Now, the reality is we still bear the scars of our brokenness with us. They don't go away. They're with us forever. And those scars are something to honor. They're not something to hide and to run from, but they're something to bring attention to. Because when we don't hide those scars, when we allow people to see them, when we honor that scarring and that brokenness, something unique and profound happens. We begin to share it. We begin to talk about it. We begin to bring it into the light. And those scars become a testimony to what God has done in our life. They tell the story of God's redemptive and healing power in our lives. And this act of storytelling becomes this communal act of healing, really. The more we share of what God has done in our lives, the more we are healed and restored. And at the same time, it creates a safe place for others to experience the same kind of healing and restoration that God offers through the person of Jesus. In sharing our scars, in naming our brokenness, in telling that story, we come to understand more and more that we are not here to fix. We come to the realization that we are powerless to fix ourselves. But the Lord is the one who brings about healing and redemption. He is the one who brings about restoration in our lives. This is the point at which we begin to see the real beauty of the gospel, that despite our brokenness, God offers us grace and mercy. It is his great love that leads us to repentance. It's his great love that leads us to repentance. And the scars that we bear, the brokenness that's still with us is a testament to that great love. It's a testament to what God is able to do in our lives if we surrender our lives to him, if we say yes 
to Jesus and we allow him to begin to work, to begin piece by piece to put us back together in a way that's more beautiful and resilient than we ever could have imagined in the midst of our own brokenness and circumstances. Now, here in a minute, we're going to pray, and there are going to be community group leaders during worship that are going to be around the room afterwards. They're just going to be spread out around the room, and what they're going to be spread out around the room for is that they just want to be available for prayer. They just want to be available to pray. They want to be available to listen. They want to be available for you guys. So if you guys have something going on, maybe you guys are dealing with some trauma right now. And you're just asking God to bring healing and redemption into that area of your life. Maybe you're at a point where you recognize your own profound brokenness and you've never said yes to Jesus before. Maybe you just need somebody to tell your story to. I would encourage you, go find a community group leader. Go talk to somebody. We want to pray with you. We want to hear your story. We want to be a part of really beholding what God wants to do and the healing work that he wants to begin in your life as we follow him and begin to live transformed lives. So take advantage of that. Go talk to somebody. Go pray with somebody. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you, Jesus. God, in the midst of a very sobering reality that that we are broken, and that there's nothing that we can do to fix ourselves, that God, that you made a way. You made a way for us to be back in right relationship with you. And so, Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the work of your son, Jesus, who took our place, bearing our shame and our guilt. And now you offer us newness of life. So, Father, we pray, God, I pray right now for healing, Lord. That as we we begin to think about and examine the brokenness that exists in our own life, that, God, that you would bring healing to those areas, Jesus. And we thank you that our own brokenness, that the scars that come from that, God, they are a testament to what you have done. And we thank you for the power of that story, God. Because that story is ultimately not about us, but it's about you, and it's about what you want to do in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that you would empower us, Lord, to take that story out into the world, Jesus, and to begin to share it, to begin to behold and name our brokenness, God, and point others back to you and your great love and mercy for us. So we pray this all in your name.